I remember I was getting ready to go to work when the news came on TV. It seemed like a fairy tale, a bad one. And even as we watched, then came the surprising knowledge that yet another plane had flown into the other twin tower. I remember the anger, I remember the pain, I remember the sense of loss, the sense of wonder, what was going on, how could this be? I remember going to work and the emotions that were raw for everybody that you met. I remember the gatherings in the community and in the churches, larger gatherings than normal. I remember Sunday mornings for about four to six weeks where worship services were practically full everywhere you'd go. We lost something that day, something that we did not think really would or could happen to us here on these shores. Pearl Harbor was a far distant memory for most of those who were on the earth at that point. But once again, people had attacked our nation in ways that we just were very vulnerable to. And all the feelings that come with loss and the grief that follows, we began to experience not only individually, but as a nation. Today we are talking about loss and the, the lost. And in some ways they share many common characteristics. We're talking about this morning the after effects of loss. And next week we'll pointedly delve into in the story of the prodigal son how our Lord would have us to respond to the lost in our world, to the willful in our world, to the sinful in our world. But this morning, let's begin with this event that we cannot escape. It, is, it was an unforgettable morning that day that we were attacked. It was hard to see it on TV and to believe it could happen as you watched the planes and the holes they made in this huge, tall skyscraper began to have a shuddering impact all the way down into the very foundations of the buildings and then one by one. To our horror, they collapsed. The World Trade Center was gone. And in this place was the rubble and the loss of many, many lives that had begun their day as they would any other normal day. This horror, the part of this horror, was viewed live on TV, making it even more unreal. Foreign terrorism had arrived in our country. We had known of terrorism. We had experienced terrorism by individuals for all kinds of different reasons. But in this particular case, foreign terrorism had made it across the waters that separated us from many countries who experienced terrorism on a regular basis that we sought to understand, but quite frankly probably could not until after that moment and in the days that followed. Anytime it's we have such a loss, there's a great kind of sorrow that comes over us. And we begin in the midst of the shock, a journey that we call grief. And that journey that we call grief is often marked by many kinds of shared experiences by humanity, although they are each 
individual grieves in their own way. Each process of grief cannot be cookie-cuttered in such a way that everybody in some kind of linear fashion experiences all of these kinds of feelings that go with grief that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross so identified years ago in her groundbreaking book. And yet, for the most part, most of these five steps of grief are something that we are all familiar with. Though the way that we relate to them and we experience them are as individual as we are as people. These stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, all kind of line up in a row for us. In fact, there's one called, even called acceptance at the end. We want to get to that. So let's just take ourselves there a moment. Recognizing that the way we grieved in 911 and after it was different from many others, especially those who had families working in those buildings, children in daycare centers in those buildings. But we all knew that we were more vulnerable than we ever had imagined from that point on. And even to this day, the effects of that event has changed our lives dramatically and continues to do so. We lived with this idea that because of our great power as a nation and because of our strength militarily and because of our distance from so many other troubled nations that somehow we were a little bit, you know, protected from those kinds of events. We didn't realize how vulnerable we could be to individuals or small groups of people who struggle with their own sense of, of hatred and justice and perpetrate those feelings upon innocent other persons, although not innocent in their view. It has become a, a reality in our lives that all the armies in the world cannot protect you against one insane individual or against one small group of people who craftively plan to do harm to others who are innocently going about their lives. And that has shaken my generation and the generations younger than mine to the core. Let's think about those kinds of feelings that go with responding to lost denial, which is really nature's way of letting in only what we can handle in the midst of a shocking loss. There's a very real sense when we experience great tragedy and loss, and especially when it's completely by surprise, that this gift from God in our emotional makeups, this gift called denial, comes in and causes us to, in the first place, often say, this can't be. Something surely can be done. Surely this can never happen again. Surely they're not all really gone. Surely we're going to find them alive in the bottom of that rubble. Surely, surely we will not find the worst. Denial protects us in the midst of our loss. It is a normal and a healthy response that often comes in the very beginning. Not always, but oftentimes comes in the very beginning of the experience of loss. Now, after loss comes another experience that seems very common to most of us, comes anger. And we often talk about anger in different ways in the church. We talk about self-righteous anger. And there are sermons being preached today, I'm sure, about the righteousness of God 
coming to the aid of his people. Self-righteous anger can be a healthy thing, but it also is a very dangerous kind of experience for those who feel so self-righteous that they can respond in those kinds of ways. But anger is very common in the midst of loss. In fact, though, as common as it is, we don't like the feeling. And it doesn't always evoke from us our best responses. But this anger is, again, a natural part of what it means to handle loss in our lives. Anger, however, uncontrolled and not guarded can deeply affect our relationships. We can be upset at someone who has nothing to do with what we're upset about because we're angry about something else that we've lost. God gets blamed a lot of times for the loss of human life on this earth that God had nothing to do with. God didn't cause it. God didn't bless it. God didn't want it. But sometimes in our grief, we blame God or want to say God is responsible because it makes us feel better. And sometimes it drives people away from the church when they've lost loved ones and they blame God for it. And yet anger, too, is given to us so that in, in the pain that often lies underneath our anger, we might experience and remember a dissipation of that anger. Even as we experience anger, it helps us to deal with the tragedy that we're trying to avoid. Even when we're so angry that we're, we're tempted in many ways, it emotionally helps us purge ourselves of the hurt that we're feeling. Because whenever we lose something and we become angry, it's really just another expression of the intensity of our love. And when we lose something that is so precious to us as a family member for such a senseless way as happened in that building, then we, if we are directly tied to it, obviously are going to feel more anger than those who are more distantly associated with it. And yet anger is a common response amongst nations when atrocities occur, as well as among individuals, even within churches, when there's loss in churches. After anger comes that known tool we call bargaining. (laughs) What if? What if I had not gone to work that day? What if my husband had stayed home? He really didn't feel well anyway. If he had just stayed home, God, why couldn't he have just stayed home? What if I had not encouraged my husband to take that job because of the increase in pain we had moved to that area? We would not have been there when those bombs hit those buildings. What is, is there not something I have done, God? Is there, is there some way I can atone for what I've done so this can all be made right? Is there something I can change? And if not, will you just promise me that this will never happen again? What do I need to do? It's the foxhole prayer syndrome, you know? Spare me, God, right now from this mess I'm in, and I'll serve you for the rest of my life. We, We feel that need to make a bargain because we feel so vulnerable to the pain of loss that we sometimes experience. And then after these kinds of feelings, as we're struggling with our fault, their fault, someone's fault, can't somebody be responsible, we often move to depression. Now, this kind of depression I'm talking about this morning 
is a, an appropriate response to a great loss. It's not a mental illness. It's an appropriate response to great loss. We can often feel at the point of a great loss, what is the point of going on? According to how terrible the tragedy is we're facing. We can subconsciously and intentionally often withdraw from others around us and life itself. We often are most depressed when we finally realize that that loved one is not coming back, that that loss from another situation cannot be reversed, that we have to live with it. We cannot avoid the pain that we feel. And then in in healthy responses to this kind of a situation comes acceptance. And now I'm not talking about the kind of acceptance that says, well, I'm okay now. Now I'm not talking about that. Because, you know, quite often we don't ever feel that. In the 38 years I've been standing before people bringing the word, I've learned one thing. The loss of young children to parents seems to bring about the greatest pain that people experience on this earth. And I know what the Bible says we're supposed to love our mate more than our children, right? That's hard to do sometimes for most of us, almost all of us. Because in a sense... I don't know why, but in the people I've come to know in the past years, when they lost a child at a young age, you look into their eyes, and they're talking about it now 30 years later. It's as if that pain is still there. You know why it's that way? Because it is. Even though they have learned to live with it and accept the fact that, they are, that they're never coming back and they can't be brought back, that pain from that kind of loss, even though accepted, often doesn't really go away completely ever as long as they breathe on this earth. It's a permanent kind of feeling for some. Yes, we do learn to live with it as our new norm because after great moments of loss, we are looking for a new norm. We somehow learn in a period of adjustment how to readjust our lives. We somehow piece by piece learn over time how to live again. We sometimes learn how we need to change, how we have become changed, how we are evolving into a life that is no longer accompanied by the person whom we're mourning. We re-engage with living during this period of acceptance, though the pain still lingers and is often felt very poignantly. You say... We've all read that or heard that in college, Doug. What is this sermon really about today, and how does that tie with the text? I think it ties in in this way. That what it's really saying to us is that the after effects of loss affect us in powerful ways, and how we respond to that makes all the difference in the world and our futures. And what we see in Luke, the chapter 15, is a little bit of a different approach than what Luke has told us about in terms of repentance earlier in the book. Because you see, what he addresses here is the idea of the lost, the persons who are lost from a solitary perspective, really, from the perspective of God and Jesus himself. Now, why I think that's important today is because I believe that Jesus is teaching us that the church of today is grieving. 
I don't think I ever thought about this this way before until as I dwelt and dwelt on these texts and wondered, well, what is new about this that, that the Lord wants to lay out in front of us? And I think it's at this, that the church of today is grieving loss. We feel as organizations and as individuals that because so much of our society in this nation is saying to the church that we don't want to be a part of the church of the past, the people who are present in the church of today sometimes feel that loss so keenly that they're grieving even without yet knowing it. They're grieving that the church of their past, it cannot be the church of the future. It just doesn't seem to work exactly that way. We want desperately to do the things we know works and have them work. I'm guilty, you know. If people would just listen to me and do what I'm telling them to do, church would be great. Why people out there can't like the church, I don't understand. And the only way I can ever understand is to allow myself to get it into their place in life to experience some of the grief that they've experienced in relation to the church. Correct or incorrectly, it doesn't matter. If it's their grief, it's their grief. So that I might understand what it is that the church can do to reach out to those people who are in a different culture than the one I was raised in. It's a different world. You don't raise children exactly like we were raised today. And if you're out there saying, yeah, and they should, you're grieving. (laughs) You're grieving. The world moves on. The world changes. I'm not saying all the change is good. I'm just saying the world does it. And if you think about life that way, then you have to ask ourselves, what steps does the church need to take in order to get to where we need to be? In this passage of Scripture in Luke, Jesus has lifted up something that threatens us if we will entertain what he's really saying. Leave the 99 and go to the one who's lost. It's threatening to churches. Because guess who the 99 are? us. We're the 99. We're the ones who are found. We're not lost. To leave the comfort of the flock and to be left by the shepherd and for the shepherd to go out and find that one lost sheep takes away the shepherd's presence from us. Yes, I've been told and have heard stories about churches who have told pastors in the past, Your job is to take care of us first. Well, not according to Luke 15. According to Luke 15, our number one task is to rescue the lost, to find the perishing, to hunt for the lost coin without ceasing. There is no give up. There is no give out. There is no no more important to take care of ourselves than to take care of those who are lost. It's not about what kind of sinful sheep it is. I mean, there's nothing in the text that says this sheep is just stupid or this was a a sheep that says this sheep was uh, rebellious or this sheep uh, didn't understand how to follow the shepherd or or the sheep got hungry and left the flock because of its gluttony. None of that's mentioned because it didn't matter to Jesus. How the expression of being lost was being lived out was a whole lot less important than that the sheep was lost. 
And our young culture today is trying to tell us comfortable 99 that it doesn't matter what they're trapped in. It only matters if we can help them get free. It only matters if we can help them come in from being lost so that they might be found. The church is not a select group of the healthy and the wealthy and the wise. It's a hospital for the sick of the world. It has to be that way. We, you say, well, we've earned it to be different. I don't care what you've earned. God doesn't care what you've earned. Jesus didn't care what he had earned. He was the son of God and he died on the cross so that I might be saved. And he says, and this is a little secret to this text. I don't think I'd ever seen it before. Just like Jesus, always hiding this stuff in the scripture right in front of my nose. He says to this group of people, they're gathered there listening to him in the context of all the banquets and inviting the right people to the feast. He says, what man among you? That's one translation. In other words, every one of you are going to go after the one who's lost. Who are the one among yous? It's us. When we care more about our youth program, and we love you, and more about our children's program, and we love them, or more about our shut-in program than we care about the loss, we have our priorities wrong. I know it feels good. I love to go have the time to just go and visit with the shut-ins because they say all kinds of sweet things, and they love the church I love, the church it used to be. You know? I love to go spend time with the youth, but why? Because I can act crazy like I was young again. Uh, if my body could only take it, I, I'd be wrestling Nick for the privilege of doing it, but my body can't take it, so it's yours. For the children, you know, I think I want to work with all the little children. I, I want children's sermon all day long, and then my grandkids all come at once, and I'm like, I don't know about that, you know? I don't know. But the reality is, in this text, Jesus is not saying all that we ought to be. Don't, then please don't misunderstand me or Jesus. Jesus is not okay with immorality. Jesus is not okay with people coming uh, and not finding a way to live a new life. He's not okay with any of that. It's just that all of that is of secondary importance. When they come in, they need to be greeted and loved. And the image over and over again is the image at table, which in the scriptures is complete acceptance. You invite someone to come to the table. You've opened yourself to them. We have to open ourselves up to the sinners of the world to the point that the rest of the church is telling us where you are welcoming sinners. Oh, may it ever be so. Because Jesus did it before us. Jesus did it before us so that we might see that in the middle of us all being sinners, we have to look beyond the sin so that we see the love we have for those people who are lost. We have to love them. We have to yearn for their salvation more so than for our own comfort. That's what Jesus did, and that's what Jesus is calling the church of today to do. I believe with my whole heart. I believe it's a, it's a biblical renaissance that is hard to recognize because our time is so allotted in the way we do everything in church that by the time we get through doing what we do for ourselves and taking care of each other, there's just not much time to give to the lost. Well, what does that mean? If you can't find enough time to brush your teeth, what happens after a while? 
Your teeth fall out, right? Isn't that what you tell your children? <laughs> or anything else that'll make them brush their teeth, right? If you don't do it, you keep doing it, your teeth will fall out. If you don't keep rescuing the lost, the ungrateful ones, the ones who don't care, who don't appreciate what church is, if you quit rescuing them, then the church is having its people fall out. And we dwindle year by year and moment by moment because our priorities have gotten it wrong. Now, listen closely. I want to say this clearly. This is a message for the past 30 years. The Baptists got it right. You should be laughing. The Baptists got it right because the most important thing on their list is that everybody be saved. I don't always agree with their methods in accomplishing that, but their incentive was correct. I don't think the Methodists have that same kind of incentive, although we did at one time. When John Wesley was teaching and preaching and the Methodist church was forming, and this great nation was being formed, and there were Methodist circuit riders riding all over this country. They had the message right. They were seeking the lost. They were bringing scriptural holiness to this whole land, and it began by just letting someone know that Jesus loved them and by being a part of the community. Come into the community just as you are. And somehow along the way, we lost that fervor. Education became more important than witness. Company care became more important than new business. It pains me to say that because I was a part of it, and I don't think I've recognized it until fully, and I, I wish so much to bargain with God and say, God, give me another 15 years, and I'll do it better. And God says, you're getting worse, son. You're getting weaker. <laughs> I said, but you could turn back the clock, right? And he said, nope, you had your shot. Just tell somebody else and pass it on. Keep doing what you're doing, but you can't get back 15 years. The church can't get back 15 years either. The only way we can change the mind of the lost out there is for us as a whole to change. Three or four of us changing won't do it. We have to reorient who we are. We have to decide to make first things first. We have to be clear that seeking ye first the kingdom of God will cause these other things to be added. That means every teenager, every child, every adult, every adult who's got a lot of experience in life needs to be welcomed by us into the kingdom. We have to go after them. Showing up here and not locking the doors but allowing them to be open is not enough. We have to go from where we are just like it says in Matthew. Now, this translate into, takes us to the next spot. If we must re-engage the lost, how do we do that? Jesus knew exactly what to say and how to do it. How do we do it? How do we pursue the people of today? That's where the growing edge is for the people of God in today's church. We had to not move beyond our grief that the last church, the church that we knew in the past, was sufficient for us. Why is it good enough for them? And we have to move forward to asking ourselves, what does it take to have a mindset of pursuing the lost first and to have a mindset of loving them just as they are, messed though they are, 
in order to get them into fellowship with those who have already walked a long way in corrective surgery, if you will. They don't have to be pure when they come in because they can't be. They don't have to be like us when they come in because they've not yet been taught. The, the, the change culturally is not that easy. We say, well, they've joined the church. They need to straighten up. Well, you joined the church too. Why are you still a glutton? I could have roll call now. I'm already standing. But I could call your names if you need to join me. I mean, I've been a follower of Christ a long time, but I still got a gluttony problem. But the person who walks in with the visible sin, we want to point them out and say, no, that can't happen here. Well, it can't happen here. It should happen here regularly. We should be bringing them in and saying, we love you. And you study the word with us, and God will change you. Yes, between you and God, it's not about me. And you say, preacher, which sins are you talking about now? Because it sounds like you might have gotten on the wrong track right about now. I'm on exactly the track you're thinking. And I, there's about at least 100 different tracks you think I'm on out there. I'm on every one of those tracks. Because sin is just sin. That's just what it is. None of it's more special than the rest of it. It all separates us from God. But a willing heart, an open heart that receives Christ, little by little, surgery by surgery, becomes the heart that God intended them to be. So where are we going to do this? That's next week's sermon. How are we going to do it? That's next week's sermon too. But I'll give you a hint. <coughs> We're going to have to energize and engage those who are lost in meaningful relationships. We're going to have to spend time with them. We're going to have to choose to invite them to our house for dinner instead of our friend of 30 years that we've been having dinner with Every night. Not every time you have a dinner, but sometimes. Why not invite somebody that doesn't know a Christian to have dinner with you from work or from your neighborhood or from the whatever event you're at at school or the community? Why not invite those? Why not invite the person in Moser Yard every Sunday? You might begin with the question, do you go to church? He might say, yeah, every Saturday night somewhere, and that will keep you from making a fool of yourself, you know. Because church does happen more than just Sunday morning, doesn't it, nowadays? But you really want to know, are they going to church? You have a church hope, but you probably don't even start with that. You go and see them doing something maybe while you're out taking a walk, and you ask them, maybe their yard looks good, and you compliment them about it. You engage them in conversation like you cared, because you do, once you take the perspective that they matter to Jesus. They're his loss, and he grieves over every one of them that do not come into his fold. That's our task. That's our job. We're going to have to invade their world in non-threatening ways. We're going to have to mix it up with sinners. I'm good at that. You know, most of the time they can hardly tell me from themselves. Some church members have not always appreciated that about me, and, and I get that. My wife has warned me a time or two, you know, you know, you begin to talk like so-and-so. I said, oh, okay, I'll dial it back. But when I'm with the redneck old boys at the country store, I've got to be a redneck old boy before they'll ever listen. And I was raised a redneck old boy in Texas, so I know exactly how they think. That was the only moment that my bird hunting trip got off course. I was getting very relaxed, and somebody brought some, the topic up, and it should never have done it. <laughs> 
So we had a moment of unrest until one of the 30-year-olds came in and said, no talk about religion while we're, while we're off from work and off, off doing these kind of things. You know, we don't have to give up our God to associate with sinners because Jesus didn't, and we don't have to either. But we do have to be willing to be the salt and the light of the world by loving people who don't deserve it and won't for quite a while. If we want to be like Jesus, like the Jesus in Luke 15, that's what we have to do. What man among you, what woman among you does not go and look for the one? If I'm lost, will you come after me? Do you allow those who are already a part of the foe when they wander away just to wander off? And you know them best? Do you care enough when your neighbor's a jerk to love him anyway? Because I know some people have jerks for neighbors. And some neighbors have Christian neighbors for jerks too. <laughs> you know? It's the way it works, right? We're all sinful. But it has to bother us. We have to not be okay with people going to hell. We have to understand, we have to get it, that the most important thing in life is leading somebody else away from that darkness. Priority one, search for them like you would a lost coin or a favorite toy. In children's language, they get really distraught when you couldn't rescue a toy. We rescued a toy last night. It was one of Miller's. It was a thing that's supposed to climb up and down the wall with a sticky suction cup, you know, and he threw it up in the high corner and it wouldn't come down. They shot it with the Nerf gun and it wouldn't come down. I thought, oh, surely it'll come down. But I kept looking at it and it just ought to come down. So I got something that was kind of heavy and I threw it at it. The more I threw it at it, the more feet I stuck harder to it. It, it didn't come down. I, I, I was confused. You know, I finally did get the toy down. I went out to the garage, crawled around all the cars and other stuff in the Heron's garage, brought in a ladder, got the ladder up to the place and set it up. And then as the ladder was set up, before I could climb up there amidst the horror of the family, Somebody else crawled, who was younger and smaller, crawled up the ladder and pulled it off the, the wall limp by limb. But it took individual time and effort to pull the toy off the ceiling. It takes the same to save the lost. It has to become a priority. Priority. 